Lord, thank you so much for this evening again. We really just thank you for this opportunity to uh, hear from Dr. Delaire and appreciate uh, everything she's been offering to us, Lord, and just pray that you would speak through her again tonight and that we would continue to learn in these last two weeks of, of class, Lord. So we just commit this evening to you. In Yeshua's name. Maybe we'll go to Joshua chapter 1 and let's just flip from chapter to chapter to remind ourselves as to uh, what's going on from chapter to chapter. And then we're going to focus on 13 to 19 tonight, which is really the distribution of land to the various tribes. All right, so in chapter 1, what takes place in chapter 1? Chazak Ve'ematz, be strong and courageous. So God tells them to, um, to Joshua, and then Joshua speaks to the elders, the, the officials of the Eastern tribes, and then the people answer, yes, anything you say, we will do. Chapter 2 deals with? Rahab. What about Rahab? I didn't remember anything we said earlier. <laughs> yeah. She was sharp. She was sharp. And what did you say? She helped the spies. She helped the spies. She took a big risk. Yeah. She did. And I don't remember if I said this when we looked at Rahab, but that's uh, in the ancient Near East, in some, I think in the law code of Hamrapi. There is a law that says that if an innkeeper is uh, is hosting uh, spies and does not tell the authorities that that innkeeper can be put to death. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the code of... Uh, well, that's it, eh? Yeah, yeah. But here we don't know how friendly she was with the king of Jericho. Mm -hmm. We also have the importance of the scarlet cord. Yes, the important messianic meaning... Uh, why was it scarlet? Why red? Why, you know, and, and a sign almost of a covenant with, uh, or an oath that she had established with uh, the spies. And she lied to her king. She what? She lied to the king. She lied to the king. Glory be to God, we can lie now, and it's okay. For <laughs> 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 the right reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> All right, chapters 3 and 4, we had mentioned that those two chapters are about the crossing, and we mentioned that those two chapters do not present the, the events sequentially. Uh, there's overlap, there's backtracking, so, so scholars would look at that and think, okay, is that two different texts that were merged together, or why? You know, somebody's going to write the story if it's one person who writes seems like you write sequentially. You don't flip-flop, you know, the events. So um, we're dealing with a text that is complex as far as composition. We don't know exactly when things were written down the first time. We don't know exactly how books all came together. Uh, we don't have the originals. We don't, the earliest we can go is uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 BC. So whatever text we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, that's, we know at least that there were some texts that were together, or whole books that were together. Uh, 
uh, by them, 200 BC, but this is 1200 BC. So were the, what was transmitted orally? How much of it was transmitted orally? Who wrote it down? I was just going to ask, um, I can't remember you talking about who wrote it. Ah, yeah, well, we don't know. I think I may have said we don't know. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, so we don't know who the author of Joshua uh, is, nor do we know who the author of several books are. I mean, talking about kings, who wrote kings, who wrote Samuel, and who wrote some of the prophets, because when you have, you know, Micah, it's called Micah, but it often talks in third person. Micah did this, Micah did that, Micah said this, and so many times, uh, you know, they are the prophecies of those prophets, those people who were called by God to, to bring forth the word, but who actually wrote those things down for the first time, we don't know. But there were some people that basically were scholars and just did that. Well, the thing is, if the events took place in 1300 B.C., 1200 B.C., Joshua, Judges, maybe they were written in 800. Maybe they were recorded. Maybe the many things were transmitted orally, which was a very strong oral tradition in those days. So that's the thing. For us, it's a mystery. But the thing is, the mystery doesn't take away from the authority of Scripture. And so sometimes, uh, you know, we want to make it nice and smooth and we want to be able to answer all questions. Well, there are a lot of questions we cannot answer. But uh, when I see the mosaic of the text, or when I look at something like Joshua 3 and 4 and think, wait, we're already in Canaan. Whoops, we're back in, in Jor uh, on the other side of the Jordan. You know, the complexity sometimes of this mosaic, I think... But God's got it all under control anyways. And it doesn't change the, the message, the plan of redemption from beginning to the end. So the composition of books, we look at that. Uh, we, if we can answer, we answer. If we can't answer, scholars will say we don't know. You know? And, or scholars will come to different uh, conclusions for different reasons. You know, maybe... Uh, certain writing styles, you know, belong to a certain time period. We know what books were written pre-exile and which books were written post-exile because the Hebrew is different. I mean, it's close enough to be all be called biblical Hebrew, but there are some differences between how pre-exile classical Hebrew is written and post-exile Haggai, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. All those books all have influence of Aramaic because Aramaic was the language of the day by then. And so so, it, so all of these details, but sometimes we have to take a step back and say, but God's got it all under control. We have what we're supposed to have, what was accepted by the Jewish community that made it in the Hebrew canon and what made it into the New Testament canon uh, later on. Uh, in the third century, uh, I believe, is when you know canon was put together of the New Testament. We have what we're supposed to have, and uh, even if we can't answer all the questions, uh, chapter five, we're in Canaan, and there are three major things in chapter five. First, circumcision, because the people in the wilderness, the next generation, had not been circumcised, and so the the first thing they do is circumcision, then Passover 
And then there's a theophany, Joshua encounters the, the commander of the Lord's army. And why is this important? It's because really this is establishing that this is a God thing. Uh, entering into Canaan, settling into Canaan, arriving, all these miracles, it's really, okay, we need to make sure we are in good relationship, in good covenant relationship with God, so to do the things that God has said uh, needed to be done. Plus, we read in the Torah that when they come into the land, they are to do this, to circumcise uh, the man to celebrate the Passover. And it doesn't talk about the theophany, but uh, uh, it's clear as to what they are to do before they start settling into the land. In chapter... Settling. Theophany. It means an appearance of God. Okay, so God appearing, and that occurs quite often. Theo is the Greek word for God. So theophany is uh, is uh, an appearance of God. And people, and I remember Kevin asking, does it mean it's, it's Yeshua? I don't know. I mean, I don't say... I don't say Yeshua because the text doesn't tell me Yeshua, but I say it's God because it's clear that it's God. Okay, so, you know, the, another area is Christology. You know, some people jump from any story in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible straight into Yeshua, Jesus. I mean, you know, that's must be Jesus speaking. Well, let's let the text be the text. God appears, God speaks, God is God, Yeshua is God. So hallelujah. <laughs> okay. And so let's not say things that are not in the text. Let's appreciate it, first of all, in its own context and see what did it say to the people of that day. What did, you know, why did they use this, this term, etc. So in chapter 5, we're in Canaan. Chapter 6 is Jericho. And we know that they have made with the agreement with uh, Rahab. So at the end of chapter 6, we have a section that talks, that uses the word all, 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 every person. They conquered everything. And so it's typical uh, language of report of a military campaign. So we have that after Jericho. Now in chapter 7, we find that there's trouble. First of all, Joshua doesn't pray before he, he moves on to the next town to go to I and take I. It's his decision. Uh, you know, he said, okay, let's go. And he sent men from Jericho to I. So unlike what we have in Jericho before and in the next chapter when God says, okay, now you can go. And chapter 7 is about the sin of Achan and who had taken of the things that were devoted to God and kept them and hid them. So there was sin in the camp. God had to deal with that before, uh, before they could move on. And then chapter 8, then they go back to Ai, and there's um, ambush, all this, and they, they take the city. And at the end of that chapter, again, from verses 24 on, uh, we have again this all, every, all, all, all as campaign report language for uh, taking of I. In chapter 9, we didn't really go there, uh, but uh, the Gibeonites trick Joshua and make a, a covenant with him that uh, uh, Israel will protect Gibeon. Gibeon is actually a very uh, central 
uh, important place in the, in the land. You have a map there, but uh, Gibeon is not there. So, and then we have the hill country. Okay, we had Jericho down here, 1,300 feet below sea level. And then you go up all the way to the top and you end up in Jerusalem. So main roads, there was a main road coming down from the north this way, and then you make your way up to Jerusalem, which is probably the way Yeshua came to Jerusalem many times to celebrate the feast or came with his family. And uh, actually, we hiked the Wadi Kelt uh, between Jericho and, um, and Jerusalem, and there are some places where you still see the, the old Roman road, you know, the steps and the, some of the, the, the markers, you know, road markers. So you don't see that from the highway because now you have the main highway. But if you hike, you can see where they actually climbed up or went back down. Now there's another main road, which is more difficult because the uh, Israel is, you know, it's, it's not as... Uh, uh, straight up and down, it's hilly, uh, and it's not as easy to have a road. But there was a main road here, and uh, and then there was also from Galilee. You had the v, what they call the Via Maris, the way of the sea. So people who wanted to go to Egypt could go north of Galilee or through here. There's another road that goes through the Jezreel Valley, and but. So you see that, and then to go back down to the sea, you know, up and down. So there were some main roads, and cities that were on main roads were important cities because trade, you know, traders would stop there, stay there, etc. So Gibeon is really on the main north-south road and very close to the east-west road. So the Gibeonites uh, had an important city, and we read that it was a good-sized city for the day. And so they tricked Joshua to make a covenant uh, with, um, with the Gibeonites to protect them. Now one thing we, we know from Deuteronomy 20, keep your finger in Joshua 9, let's go back to Deuteronomy 20. Now why did they need to trick them? Because they were told to make no uh, alliances. Exactly. They, Israel was told, now Deuteronomy chapter 20 is, uh, talks about conquest or when they go in the land, what cities, who are they to be friendly with, who are they not to be friendly with. So it's very, uh, we read earlier that in Deuteronomy 7, and nine, God said, I will go and drive out the people. And we had a lot more driving out and, you know, little by little, I will drive them out to, because that's the land that I have for you. Now, in this chapter, the language is a little bit more direct because it's, a lang it's the language that talks about military campaign language. And so it says in verse 10, uh, but what's important, let me say this first, in verse 4, well, verse 1, 
Verse 1, it says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For Adonai, your God, the God who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. When you draw near to the battle, the, the Kohen will come forward and speak to the people. He will say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are drawing near today to the battle against your enemies. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't fear or panic or tremble because of them. For Adonai, your God, is the one who goes with you to fight with you against your enemies to save you. So immediately you, you can see that, that warfare is about God. It's not just about conquest of land. It's really God is in this. If he's not in this, they lose the battle when he's not in this. But if he's in this and there's no sin in the camp, then they win. So then there's uh, more text. Then we go down to verse 10. It says, When you go near a city to fight against it, call out Shalom to it. Now if it answers you, Shalom, and opens up to you, then all the people found in it will serve you as forced laborers. If it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then lay siege against that city. When Adonai your God hands it over to you, you are to strike all its males with the sword. Only the women and children, livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, may you take as plunder for yourself. So you may consume your enemy's spoil, which Adonai your God has given you. Thus you will do to all the cities that are very distant from you, which are not among the towns of these nations nearby. However, only from the cities of these people, which Adonai your God has given you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathe live. You must utterly destroy them, cherem. And cherem is repeated twice in Hebrew here to really make the utterly. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, just as Adonai your God has commanded you. You are to do this so they will not teach you to do all the abominations that they have done for their gods. And so you would sin against Adonai your God. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, making war against it to capture it, you are not to destroy its trees by swinging an axe at them. Which I find interesting. Say, kill everybody, but keep the trees alive. So is does God value trees more than he does? Or could it be that this is military language, you know, kill uh, the people, and that's how the report comes, whether it's reality or not. So here this passage talks about what do you do, Israel, when you come and you're outside of Canaan and you encounter enemies and you go to cities, give, you can make arrangements, you can make peace with them. But if you enter the land, once you enter the land, no, there's no covenant of peace that you make with them. And you wonder if the Gibeonites knew that. Because the Gibeonites, how did they trick Joshua? They said, oh, we are from a far country. You know, they dressed in rags and they used old wineskins and old stuff. Stale bread. And, yeah, stale <laughs> bread, crumbly bread. Actually, it uses nikudot, you know, it's little grains and little little dots of bread. And, and uh, so the Gibeonites were in the land. So really, according to Deuteronomy 20, in the passage of military warfare, they should not have made an agreement with Gibeon. But the Gibeonites 
uh, said, you know, we're far a country. Well, in the far country, they could make an, an, an alliance with them. So finally, the trick, uh, uh, the covenant is established, and Joshua cannot back off. And because it's too late, he's already established that covenant, made a promise, and uh, so he's going to, then he becomes, in a, a, they're in alliance. So when Gibeon is in trouble because the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of the south, they heard about what happened in Gibeon and, and they said, hey, we need to go attack Gibeon. And so that's what happens in the next chapter. So chapter 9 is the, the conniving or, or trickery of the Gibeonites, the agreement with Joshua and with Israel. And then chapter 10 is really the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, uh, Eglon, uh, is it Lachish, Devir, yeah, Lachish, they get together and to attack the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites made an alliance with Israel. So then Israel uh, comes to their rescue and then God throws his stones from heaven, big hailstone, and the sun stands still. It's a wonderful chapter, all kinds of wonderful things. And um, uh, so, yeah, so that's what happens in chapter 10. And so now that's the south. And so chapter 11 is the conquest of the north because they end up uh, winning in the south. So the king of Hazor, north of the Sea of Galilee, says to all the kings in the area, and it says all the kings join together, all the Canaanite kings, because they saw the Israelites. See, the Israelites started, uh, the story is interesting. The book of Joshua starts with one, one city, Jericho. And then they go up the hill and they get to Ai. And it says that Ai and Bethel join together. So you've got, you know, a larger span. And then they get up the hill and then it's the five kings of those cities of the south. So, you know, it's, it starts with Jericho and the book goes to really ends up covering the entire uh, territory. And then when it talks about the campaign of the north, it's all the kings, all the Canaanite kings end up joining together against Israel. But because God is the one who was leading the battle, God is the one who was their commander-in-chief, and then they end up... Uh, <coughs> establishing also their foothold in the north. So we have two and a half tribes on the east side and now we're here the rest of the tribes need to know okay where do we go you know. I mean they were well organized in the desert when they had the tabernacle you know three tribes here and three here and three here and three here. Well, now you get in the land, so they need to go, they need to know where to settle. And uh, so this is what we have between chapter 13 and 19. But the way 13 to 19, Joshua 13 to 19 is, is designed, it's very interesting because it gives us territory description and then you have a kind of story. You know, a kind of little narrative story that joined. We're going to look at some of those. 
And then you have another description of territory, then you have another story. You have territory description, you have another story. And so it makes 13 to 19 more interesting to read, especially because you end up getting some interesting you know, narratives that link uh, those description of territories. Because the description of territories are given in two ways. Either you get the list of all the cities in the territory and the border towns, or you only get the border towns mentioned. So, if the, so there's not only one way to describe the, the, the territory that is given. So the book of Joshua follows these two uh, patterns. So in chapter 13, and we'll uh, start here, chapter 13 begins, uh, chapter 12 tells us all the kings who were conquered, and so we're here, they made it, and they've overcome everyone. And we saw in chapter 11, said they killed them all, none that breed was left living, none, 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 entirely, entirely, all, all, all. And uh, so which is the typical military report, campaign report language of hyperbolic or exaggerated language. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, when Adonai said to him, You are old and getting on in years. Thank you, Lord. Yet very much of the land is still left to possess. So they had been in the land for a while before they really got organized. You know, they didn't immediately start you know, distributing this and that. It took a while because, you know, uh, they were there and there are other stories in the Bible where you see the Israelites kind of hanging out, you know, waiting for the weather to change or something. And uh, until somebody said, hey, get your act together and get moving. And I can think of the story of, uh, of Joseph, you know, and his brothers. And... Uh, where at one point they go get grain and then they leave one brother in Egypt and they come back in the land and, and you know, they just kind of eat all their grain. And at one point, Jacob says, Lama titra'u. Why are you looking at each other? We need some more grain here, guys. You know, so you get almost the idea of yeah, okay, oh, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> so it's interesting the uh, way it is described. And so they go back. And they even left a brother there and kind of, okay, we're fine. We have work. And he's in prison. Surely they must feed him. And uh, so anyways, then, so there are places where you see that almost complacency sets in until, wow, you know, a voice uh, rises from somewhere. Say, hey, wake up, you know. And... Uh, so here, God says to Joshua, you're all getting on in years, yet very much of the land is still left to possess. So they're there, but it doesn't mean that they're possessing it. It doesn't mean that they're actually enjoying their inheritance. And so it took a while before all this uh, you know, evolved. And look down at verse 7. Uh, well, verse uh, 6. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Miskatotmaim, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before B'nai Israel. So again, here we have the drive them out. 
God doesn't say, you know, kill them all. God says, and they're in the land. So the language of drive them out, God, I will drive them out. Little by little, as we saw in Deuteronomy. Only allotted to Israel for an inheritance for I have, uh, as I have commanded you. So now divide this land as an inheritance for the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So we have Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh here, the other half-tribe. Now remember that the men of the eastern tribes have joined in and have gone in to Canaan with the rest of the Israelites to help them. That was the instructions that God had given Moses. Moses had told the men, so, so they did so. So nine and a half tribes now, they need to know uh, where to go, what to do. And so the first thing that happens in chapter 13, after this, starting at verse 8, is really describing the land of the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now Moses gave them this territory, not Joshua. So Moses took, took part in the distribution of land to the tribes, because he's the one who gave this land to the two and a half tribes. And one thing that we find repeated several times, look at verse 14. Only to the tribe of Levi he gave no inheritance. The fire offerings of Adonai, God of Israel, are his inheritance as he spoke to him. So what we find is we have distribution of land, description of land. Oh, by the way, no tribe was, no territory was given to the Levi until we get to chapter 21 where you have Levitical cities and to take care of the Levi. So how do we end up with 12, still 12 territories? The half-tribes. Yeah, the half-tribes, and then you have the sons of Joseph, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, so you end up covering all the sons of, of uh, Jacob and the sons of uh, Joseph also. So then we go in, so the first thing we have in chapter 13, or second thing, is the description of the inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Now, in chapter 14, uh, it, it, we have an interesting, so we've had here territory, okay? Description in chapter 13 of territory. Well, in chapter 14, we end up having a very interesting narrative that links things together. And if you look at, um, uh, starting at verse 6. Now, I'm going to read it with a bit of an intonation where I think it's needed. And then you tell me, now, what do we know about Caleb so far? He's old and strong. He's old and strong. He was one of the spies. Where do we find that? Uh, well, I read it the other day. Yeah, that's right. It's in the Bible. Yeah, Numbers 13. So that's one place where you can go back and read the entire story. And actually, uh, Caleb here refers to what happened in chapter 13. So I'm going to read this section here from 6 to 13. And I think it's so interesting because so far, this has been 45 years, and we haven't heard a peep from Caleb. And so we heard him when he brought the good report as one of the spies, and he calmed, tried to calm the people down, and then not a word. We know he's there, but not a word. And here, finally, he opens his mouth. 
And I find it so interesting because I find uh, it's as if he's been holding this in one of these days. I'm going to not get what's, what's for me. And finally, he just kind of explodes, you know. And so he comes, it says in verse 6, And the children of Judah approach Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word that Adonai has spoken to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, concerning me and you. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Adonai, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him back word as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my fellows that went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I fully followed Adonai, my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have fully followed Adonai, my God. Now he's been thinking about this for 45 years. So now, behold, Adonai has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that Adonai spoke this word to Moses, while Israel was journeying in the wilderness. Now, behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me, as my strength was then. So my is my strength now for war and for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this hill country about which Adonai spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there as well. The Anakim were giants. Were there as well as great fortified cities. Perhaps Adonai will be with me and I will drive them out just as Adonai has spoken. So Joshua blessed him and gave him one down. Hebron. (laughs) So I think it's just so interesting. There's not a word from from, uh, Moses. Oh yes, I remember. Yes, those were those days were very precious, you know. So it's just like Moses, uh, uh, not Moses, Joshua, uh, listens. All about you. It's <laughs> good thing you have a good memory, you know. I mean, can you imagine for forty-five years that promise that he would finally get the land? Or give me, give me. And it's interesting in a text when you have a term, an expression, or something that is repeated over and over and over again. It's part of the rhetoric that is used, or the language, or keywords, or emphasis. Uh, that is used to really make a specific point, you know. So we haven't heard anything from Caleb up till this point, and then he comes and says, you know, here I am. Give me my share. It has been promised to me. Now, uh, so it's a, a story after the description of territory to the Eastern tribe. We have this interesting narrative that, uh, for those of you who don't see here, this story that kind of links us to the next part. Now, where do we find this, uh, what Caleb is referring to? Go back to Numbers chapter 14. So again, which is part of intertextuality. And so it's important that we can connect what Caleb is saying to uh, what has happened before. Because we're going to have one of those stories that is not going to be connected to anything. And they're going to try nonetheless. 
Uh, yeah, Numbers chapter 14. Number chapter 13 is really where we have the description of uh, the, the spies going in the land. Uh, so, and we know that Joshua came back, and not Joshua, but uh, Caleb, and Joshua, but Caleb uh, came back with a good report. And in chapter 13, verse 30, it says, And Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should definitely go up and capture the land, for we can certainly do it. That's about the last thing we heard from him. But uh, So he was one of the good spies, brought a good report. And then chapter 14, starting at verse 20, It says, uh, Adonai answered, and all the people came with the bad report, so God says, no good. So the next generation is not, this generation is not going to go in the land because they're, you know, they're disobedient and etc. Uh, but as for Joshua and Caleb, it's going to be a different story. So verse 20 says, Adonai answered, I have forgiven them just as you have spoken, but I, because Moses interceded for them. But as certainly as I live and as certainly as the glory of Adonai fills the entire earth, none of the people who saw my glory and my miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet these ten times they did not obey my voice. Not one of these will see the land I promised to their forefathers. None of those who treated me with contempt will see it. However, my servant Caleb, because of a different spirit, is with him, and he is wholeheartedly behind me. I will bring him into the land where he went. His offspring will inherit it. So, I mean, when Caleb heard that, glory be to God, one of these days I'm going to go in there and I'm going to get my heart, you know, I, you know, how do you react when somebody says, oh, you have a good spirit and Oh, yes, I am so humble. And, uh, <laughs> so my servant, Caleb, because of his different spirit, uh, is with him. He's wholeheartedly behind me. I'll bring him into the land where he went, his offspring, and so he'll inherit it. So the promise comes from there. And that's what, that's the account of what Caleb remembers in uh, Joshua chapter 14. And uh, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, which is also a place where this is confirmed. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Yeah, and Moses is talking to Israel. We know that Deuteronomy is basically the last sermon of uh, you know, going over the law, instructions, all of that for Israel. And, uh, and so he's telling them, verse 34, chapter 1. When Adonai heard the tone of your words, he was angry, and it's referring to their rebellion, and swore an oath saying, not one of these men of this evil generation will see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Yetimeh. He will see it, yet to him and his children I will give the land that he has walked on because he has followed Adonai wholeheartedly. And so Moses confirms that. It was told to Moses, yes, uh, Caleb will have an inheritance because he obeyed and he brought a good report. He was of the right spirit. When they get just before they enter Canaan on Mount Nebo here, or in that area of Mount Nebo, 
uh, Moses said yes and this will also be fulfilled and the whole generation ended up dying in the wilderness so if we go back to chapter 14 of Joshua so we see you know I, I haven't heard I haven't seen yeah, I've looked at many commentaries and I haven't seen too many commentaries talk about uh, Caleb as a me myself and I speech you know it's, uh, I find that Caleb is very protective and very, you know, a good guy, and no doubt he was a good guy, but I find the language so interesting. Oh, me, wow, strong, you know, can do, man. <laughs> you know? is, it, is it true that uh, he comes from a non-Israelite stock, the Kenzites? Uh, possible, but it also, the first time we encounter Caleb in... Uh, in Numbers 13, it says he's from the tribe of Judah. So, could be Kenizzite. And what did that really mean, the name of all these these people groups, you know? Uh, does it uh, make them all outside of Israel, or does it uh, identify also some in Israel? Because uh, Numbers 13 is clear. The 13, 6, I have written here that he's of the tribe of Judah. Because as a spy, the 12 spies were picked from the 12 tribes. So uh, he had to be uh, from the Israelite uh, community. So, yeah, so Kenizzites would have been part of the tribe of Judah. All right, so here we have this nice story. Now we go on to the next chapter. Well, actually, first, before we go to the next chapter, let's look and see uh, what... Caleb did with his territorial inheritance, which is in the next chapter. So we know that he takes Hebron, or the area of Hebron, and then look at chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 13. And we hear from Caleb again, but this will be, I believe, the last time we hear from Caleb. It says, Now to Caleb, son of Yephuneh, he gave a portion among the children of Judah and the command of Adonai to Joshua, Kiryat Arba, which is Ebron. Arba is the father of that. Kiryat, Kiryat is a town. So Arba means four. So it is possible that Kiryat Arba was four little settlements that ended up forming Hebron, one town that were joined together. So he had the area of Hebron. Actually, if you look in your map, you can see as part of Judah, you can see Hebron. It's in the purple west of the Dead Sea, and so Hebron is in the desert. Oh, did you get a map? Okay. And so you can see where Hebron is. So at least this is one area where we know this is the area where Caleb was, and his family, because it says he was told to also give land to his family. So in um, verse 14 of chapter 15, Says, so Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, children of Anak. Then he went up from there against the inhabitants of Devir. Now the name of Devir formerly was Kiryat Sefer. Kiryat, the town of the book, maybe scribes lived there, you know, uh, possible. Verse 16, Caleb said, I will give my daughter Achsa as a wife to the one who attacks Kiryat Sefer and captures it. 
So Othniel, son of Kenaz, and Othniel we find in the book of Judges. And so there's a lot of overlap between Judges, Joshua and Judges. Some of the things in the book of Joshua are copied, if you want, plagiarized into uh, the book of Judges, and uh, that's next year, both in Judges. So he says, uh, verse 16, I will give my daughter Achsa as a wife to the one who attacks Kiryat Sefer and captures it. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's kinsman, captured it, so he gave him his daughter Achsa as a wife. Now it came about when she came to him that she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you need? Give me a blessing, she said, for you have given me land in the Negev. You should also give me springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now the Negev is basically a desert. So to be given springs, it's significant because then you have kind of an oasis. And so it's, it's precious territory. So chapter 14, we have Caleb who receives his inheritance. The beginning of chapter 15, in which we find the distribution of land uh, or the giving of the inheritance to Caleb's daughter. We, this is the longest description in chapter 15. It's the description of the inheritance of Judah. And if you look at your map, you can see that Judah is quite large. But there's not much there because it's mainly desert. Anything south of Bethlehem, you know, you have Jerusalem right at the top, at the edge of Benjamin. And then, so the, the, the land of Judah covers quite a large area. And then we find that Judah ends up giving land to Simeon, the tribe of Simeon. And uh, so it's mainly <coughs> in that area. So, but it describes all the cities and the borders uh, of the area of Judah. And then at the end of chapter 15, verse 63, it says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites continue to live among the children of Judah and Jerusalem to this day. And so we know Jebusites were Canaanites, lived in the land. They, they, the city of Jerusalem was called Jebus, and so they were the Jebusites who lived in that area. Not just, they didn't live just in Jerusalem, but they, that's one main city that they have. So we have in chapter 15, description of Judah with some land that belongs to Caleb and some of his inheritance he gives to his daughter, Aksa, and her family. In chapter 16, we have Ephraim. Ephraim is described, and you have Ephraim uh, north of Benjamin, so not very far from Jerusalem. Uh, you have some major cities there, Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, was set up uh, in Ephraim. And uh, so that's the, the description. But at the last verse of 16, in verse 10, it says, But they did not drive out the Canaanites that were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites continued to live in the midst of Ephraim to this day and became forced laborers. So again, we see that they didn't kill them all. Okay? They were still in their midst uh, when the inheritance uh, was distributed. And we know that, you know, that's, 
if they were in the wilderness 40 years. Caleb was 40. So maybe they've been five years already in the land and the distribution has not yet taken place. And so here, finally we get to a point. So the Canaanites are still in the land. They haven't been all destroyed as uh, we could think they have been based on the end of 11. Chapter 17, we have the inheritance of Manasseh. So here we've had some more land distribution. We're going to get to um, another um, another yeah another story or narrative, which is part of uh, uh, of chapter 17. Uh, in let's start at verse one. We're going to go to verse four. It says, now this was the allotment of the tribe of Manasseh, the firstborn of Joseph, to Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the, the father of Gilead. Since he was a man of war, he got Gilead and Bashan. So for the rest of the children of Manasseh, according to their clans, for the sons of Adiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, Shemidah, these were the male children of Manasseh, son of Joseph, according to their clans. Now here's a nice little story. But Zalophahad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. These were the names of his daughters, Machla, Noah, Hogla, Milkah, and Tirzah. So they appeared before Eliezer the priest, before Joshua, son of Nun, and before the leaders, saying, Adonai commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our kinsmen. Therefore, according to the commandment of Adonai, he gave them a portion among their father's kinsmen. Now, where was this promise made? Again, we go back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 27. So promises that were made to Caleb in the book of Numbers, or in the wilderness, are fulfilled when they come in. Promises that were made to the daughters of Zelophehad in the wilderness then are fulfilled once Zelophehad's daughter, daughters are in the land. So in chapter 27, uh, let's start reading at verse 1. Yeah, and it gives us, the, the it ends up being the law from this passage, the law of how inheritance should take place or territorial inheritance should uh, be distributed if a man does not have sons. So verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, <coughs> of the families of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the names of his daughters were Machla, Noah, Hogla, Melchah, and Tirzah, stood before Moses, Eliezer the, the priest, and the princes of the entire assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness, but we have not but he was not one of the followers bending together against Adonai with Korah, though he died for his own sin. Which I think is an interesting comment. Yet he had no sons. Why should our father's name diminish from his family just because he had no son? Give us property among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their issue before Adonai, and Adonai spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in saying you should give them property, but by inheritance among their father's relatives. You are to turn over the inheritance of their father to them. Furthermore, you are to speak to the Israelites, saying, If a man dies without a son, 
You are to transfer his inheritance to his daughter first. If he has no daughter, you are to give his inheritance to his brothers second. If he has no brothers, you are to give it to his father's brothers third. If his father has no brothers, you are to give it to the nearest relative fourth in his family that he might possess it. This is to be a legal statute for B'nai Israel, just as Adonai commanded Moses. So it's binding, it's law, the, the promise was made. And so here, the daughters of Zelophehad, who are in the land, uh, Caleb came to Joshua and Eliezer and said, okay, give me what was promised to me. The daughters of Zelophehad come to Joshua and the priest and the elders and say, okay, give us what we're supposed to get, what was promised to us in the wilderness. So they are given land here in Bashan on the eastern, in Manasseh, but in eastern uh, Manasseh. So an interesting <coughs> story that brings us back to the book of Numbers. And then we continue with the distribution of land. Uh, back in Joshua chapter 17. Yeah, which is very interesting. Chapter 17 is the inheritance of Manasseh. Now look at how big the territory is of Manasseh. And you know, the luscious the luscious parts of the country are really around the Sea of Galilee and in the in the uh, uh, the area that brings you all the way down to the sea, the Shvela. And so it's very good soil where you can plant and grow things while it's not, not at all that in Judah. Judah is basically a desert. So Manasseh already has been given two major pieces of territory. But look at what they say in chapter 17. It gives us a description of the land that is given to them on the western side of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in verse 12, yet the children of Manasseh could not take possession of these towns because the Canaanites were resolved to live in that land. But when Bene Israel became stronger, that they put the Canaanites, then they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly dispossess them. Then the children of Joseph, which is Manasseh and Ephraim, spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? For we are numerous people whom Adonai has thus far blessed. So Joshua said to them, If you have so many people, go up to the forest and clear a space for yourself. There in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. I mean, you've got Ephraim and Manasseh are complaining. We want more. You know? But you think, did they... They heard Caleb say, okay, give us our inheritance, and, and Joshua gave it to them. They heard um, the daughters of Zelophehad say, can we get our inheritance? And Joshua said, well, here it is. So they may have thought, well, gee, maybe if we can go see Joshua and the Eliezer, maybe we can get more, you know? And so because you look at all the area, and we're dealing with both Ephraim and Manasseh here. So... So Joshua doesn't say, oh yes, we can't go back to the book of Numbers and say, oh yes, it was promised to them. No. It wasn't, no. you know. So Joshua doesn't fall for the, you know, poor us, we're so numerous. Well, fine, then you've got lots of people to put to work, you know, clear the area. And verse 16, 
the hill country will not be enough for us. The children of Joseph replied, But all the Canaanites who inhabit the valley land have iron chariots, both those who are in Bethshan and its villages and those who are in the Jezreel Valley. But Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and, and to Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people with great strength. You should have just won allotment, because the hill country should be yours. Though it is a forest, you will clear it, and to its farthest borders it will be yours. For you will drive out the Canaanites, even though they have iron chariots, and even though they are strong. And it's interesting because Caleb, we read this story. Caleb said, me, myself, and I, I can beat the giant Anakim. I'm strong, I'm, you know. And here, here you have a narrative that Manassites say, we are so numerous, but you know that the Canaanites are kind of a danger, you know. We just don't know how to deal with them. It should be the opposite, you know. And, but nothing extra was promised to them, so they already got quite a good allotment in very good part of the country. I mean, when you, you travel in this area, you know, you can do olive groves, a lot of olive groves, vineyards in those areas. Not as good as Galilee, where Naphtali and Hissachar and Zebulon are, but, uh, but it's good land nonetheless. And then we go to uh, chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1, tells us that the whole congregation of B'nai Israel assembled at Shiloh. Where is Shiloh? Can you find it on your map? Yeah, right. It's near it. Okay, part of Ephraim. So that's where they uh, they set up the tent of meeting there after the land was subdued before them. And if you go to Shiloh today, we were able to go there last year, and there's a community of Orthodox Jews who live there. And there is a platform uh, that is there. Uh, there's also a beautiful little museum where they show you a movie now of you know uh, some of uh, the history of what happened in that area, biblical history that happened in that area. But the uh, the people from the town came and they had a prayer meeting on the platform where they believe the tent of meeting was established at that time. Uh, it looks a bit too modern for me, but uh, but it, it's still Shiloh. It's been identified as the area of Shiloh. So it's interesting to, it was interesting to be there and talk to them and say, okay, so they explained their tradition and yes, we've, we've come here and we want to live here and because God manifested himself here and they're believers in God, you know. And so it's interesting. <coughs> and then we go on in that chapter, starting at verse 11, we have the distribution of land to Benjamin. Where is Benjamin? Benjamin is just north of Judah. It's a narrow strip. And it's pretty steep when you go from the, the Jordan, from the area of Jericho, and go up to the hill country. I remember with the bus, we used to take an old road just along the, the, you know, the, the side of the mountain as we climb. And I, you know, I don't get scared easily, but um, that's whenever we had a Benjamin day, I would pray a lot. <laughs> and, but now you can't take that road because it's been washed away. And so, thank God. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> we take the highway. <laughs> I was so glad to hear it was closed. <laughs> Although, 
like to hike in some of those areas because it gives you a good idea of what it felt like, you know, when people walk from one area to the other. But on this huge bus with all these people, I thought, oh, God, have mercy. And you don't want to meet somebody, you know, coming from the other side. So that's over and done with. Hallelujah. <laughs> so we have the description here in chapter 18 of Benjamin. And then chapter 19, uh, we end up having uh, seven more tribes. One, two, three, four, five, no, five more tribes that still have not received their uh, inheritance. So the description of those, uh, that territory appears in that uh, chapter. So in verse one, it says, then the second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the children of the uh, Simeon according to their plans. Now their portion was in the midst of the, the portion of the children of Judah. Why was that? Because, okay, I have the exact place where it uh, describes where. Oh, I had uh, a verse that, uh, another verse that talked about, uh, yes, here it is, verse 9, chapter 19. Verse 9, it says, The inheritance of the children of Simeon was taken out of the allotment of the children of Judah, for the portion of the children of Judah was too much for them. So the children of Simeon had inheritance within Judah. So the territory was quite large, although there wasn't much going on there. So, you know, so they ended up getting uh, the portion there. Because for Judah to be able to control the whole area uh, was quite a bit. Okay, so in verse 9, it makes it more explicit. And then in verse 10, says the third lot came on for the children of Zebulon. And the Zebulon are up in the Galilee. And then verse 17, the fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the children of Issachar, according to the plants, who are next to Zebulon, just west of the Jordan. And then verse 24, then the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the children of Asher, and so Asher is along the sea. And verse 32, the sixth lot came out for the children of Naphtali. Naphtali is in Galilee also, along the, the Sea of Galilee and north. And then 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the children of Dan, according to their tribes. Now look at where Dan is located. Dan is located in the territory of who? The Philistines, the five main Philistine cities are in this area. And so after a while, it's interesting that uh, uh, in Judges chapter 18, we can turn and we're going to close with, uh, with uh, this and one more place. In chapter 18, in the book of Judges, it says the Danites seek a new home. That's entitled... Uh, what was happening is the Philistines were giving really a hard time to the Danites. So the Danites were not able to settle and establish towns and, and, and you know, establish roots in that area. So they end up looking elsewhere. And then they find out you have the city of Dan. You can see up here. So the Danites end up moving north. Now, now look at Judges chapter 20. And verse 1, it says, Then all the Israel went out 
and was assembled as one man from Dan to Beersheba. And this is the first time that from Dan to Beersheba is mentioned. So it means that by the time uh, in the book of Joshua we have the description of Dan, the tribe of Dan, having this territory given. But then in the book of Judges, during the time of uh, the Judges, they, they couldn't handle it anymore. It was just too much to have to deal with the Philistines. They look up, and by the time of uh, Judges chapter 20, you end up having the description, the first time you have the description, from Dan to Beersheba. And so many times that expression is used to talk about the whole land, from north to south. Okay, so this happened or that happened from Dan to Beersheba. And so we know that by Judges 20, and so then we end up having uh, the Danites really have given up on the area by the coast and have established. And if you go to Dan today, it's beautiful up there. Uh, there's the, it's in the, the area of the Hula Valley, and it's uh, yeah beautiful uh, river that actually feeds into the Hula Lake up here. And then a beautiful river that, that empties into the Sea of Galilee. And really nice hiking in the area, nice, uh, very green, uh, and there are some very interesting uh, archaeological uh, remains of Canaanite shrines that are still there that you can look at today. But. Um, they chose a good spot, and actually, uh, it talks about they chose the area because it was peaceful, and nobody had really taken uh, that area. So they settled up here, and they remain up here for the rest of the biblical history. All right. So, any takeaways? Now, have you ever read the description of the the territories? I read it earlier this week, and I found it interesting that uh, the folks in Judah. Yeah. They don't seem to mind. Yeah. Well, they've been living in the desert for four years. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah, so it starts with just the, the outskirt of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is, a, is described as being in Benjamin. But when you read also the description of Judah, then you wonder, is it in Judah or is it in, in Benjamin? Or, but anyways, the, it's right there, it's cut off between Benjamin. And, and then Bethlehem, Hebron, uh, En Gedi is an oasis, and we have uh, water sources. You can go see the, the waterfalls at En Gedi, beautiful. Um, the, the desert, it's hot, but my favorite place in Israel is to hike in the Wadi Zin. And the Wadi Zin is, is like hiking in the Grand Canyon. You have these walls on both sides, and you, you climb slowly, and you get to pools of water. And it's so beautiful. I love the desert. It's gorgeous. And then we climb on the side of the, the, the cliff. And there are, they've carved in the rock some steps. And then you have to go up a ladder for, uh, at one point. To, and then you continue hiking towards uh, the air-conditioned bus. Hallelujah. <laughs> 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 And so, yeah, so it's desert, but there's a lot of beautiful... I like it in English. Eh? I, I, that's my favorite. 
in, in the south. It is hot. Beersheba, it is Beersheba. hot in that area. But, uh, yeah, I was in Beersheba for three years. And Arad, because they have Qumran and Gedi. I mean, they have a lot of really nice spots there. And uh, anybody else? Uh, according to Joshua, what I learned today, that if God said to kill these people, he has a purpose for that. And if you don't listen, whatever God said to us, if you don't do exactly what he said, it basically creates a lot of problems later in life. That's right. So the agreement that the covenant that was established between Joshua and the Gibeonites uh, ended up creating big problems. Problems. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, correct. Disobeying God in the wilderness was fatal. Anyway, in our lives too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are lessons. God is the same. And, uh, so. When the kingdom was divided um, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, how did the Simeon end up in the north? He was down there. Because wasn't Judah and Benjamin in the south there? I don't know that Simeon moved north, though. I think they, they were one of the there. Ten. There was no, I thought it was just Benjamin and Judah that were yeah. south. But is Simeon mentioned? A good question. I need to check that to see if when they talk about the northern kingdom, do they talk about Simeon? Because it may just be understood that Judah included Simeon. And so, a good point. Let me check in that because we have to look then in... Uh, in kings. Because Judah and Benjamin were together. Yeah, right? yeah. In, in the southern kingdom. And, uh, yeah, because at, um, at Bethel was the southern place where uh, Jeroboam ended up setting up the altar in the south. And he set up an altar in the north at Dan and at uh, Bethel so people would not have to go to Jerusalem to worship. So that's right on the edge of Benjamin and Ephraim. So yes, that was the southern border of the northern kingdom. But uh, I don't know if Simeon is just understood as uh, staying in Judah. I'll check. Good, uh, good point. Uh, yeah, because we normally talk about Judah. We don't even talk about uh, Benjamin. You know. I have one more thing to say. I heard, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I heard when this land was divided by tribes, it was according to the number of people. The bigger tribe, they've got bigger place. That's yeah. why some of them are small and some of them are bigger. Not because of yeah. The, yeah. anything else. You're correct. And so, yeah, it is stated that it was according to the number of people in the tribe. Uh, yet, I don't know that Judah was that much bigger than Manasseh, for example. Uh, but the type of land that they get uh, may have also uh, been part of it. But yes, it is stated that according larger tribes got larger. Uh, yeah. We have one more week. Next week will be yeah. about a week in Joshua. Hold on to your maps and your notes. Right. Yeah, next week, what's left now is next week we have the Cities of Refuge in Chapter 20, Levitical Cities in 21, and then the goodbye speeches, the three goodbye speeches of Joshua uh, to, uh, well, first of all, sending the Eastern tribes back uh, east in Chapter 22, 
then to the elders in chapter 23 and to all of them in chapter 24. So we've got to finish the book with a nice good book. Well, let's, uh, let's finish the finish tonight with prayer. If uh, Senor Montenegro would honor us with a uh, closing prayer, that would be great. I thought so. I could tell looking at it. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us together tonight and being able to really gain some additional insight from our play. Please be with us as we go back into our, uh, our week and uh, let us be able to dwell on what we've, what we've learned tonight and be able to grow in you uh, even further. In Jesus' name. Thank you.